So we will just begin in the, in the first part of this, and there's, there's a reason to this, uh, not going through the whole book, but starting in the very beginning. And uh, I'm reminded of when I was in college, I w- attended a class, it was uh, a New Testament survey class, and the prof asked us to read a few books that semester, as they all do, and uh, our first book quiz, we walked into the class, and he had said, make sure you read the entire book. And because I'm going to ask you major themes, there, there won't be anything specific, but there'll be major themes throughout the book, uh, uh, things like that. And so we all sit down, and we, he hands out the test, and we look at it, and probably three-fourths of this test was over just the introduction of the book. And like many of my fellow classmates, we all skipped the introduction, because who needs the introduction to the book? I'm going to read the entire thing. I'll know it by the end. Needless to say, we were all thankful and, and praising God that he dropped two quiz grades that semester because that was definitely needed by the end of the, the class that day. But, but his point was, is if you skip the beginning, if you skip the introduction, you lose the essence of the book. You lose the point of it. In the introduction, the author states why he's writing, who he's writing to, uh, the purpose of the book. He, a good writer will, will state his theme in the introduction, the, the one argument he will be uh, posing the entire book, and so he pretty much told us, if you had just read the introduction, you would have aced this, t- this quiz. And so what we want to do this morning is I want to encourage you to, this afternoon, sit down and read the entire book of Galatians. It sounds like a daunting task, but it's actually just a letter. It was intended to be read in, in its entirety when it was first read. It is only six chapters. I've sat down and I've read the entire book. I can do it in about 30 minutes. And so you should be able to do it in about 20, because I'm a very slow reader. So I would encourage you this afternoon, after we get through this introduction, to take what this introduction is telling us and apply it to how you read the entirety of the book uh, later on. So we will be in the first nine verses of chapter one, but before we get too deep into the text, I'd like to provide us with a little bit of a background to the book. Uh, Many people don't like the book of Galatians because they feel like it's an an attack against the Old Testament, an attack against the law, an attack against uh, what God has commanded his people to do. I will say I'm not against God's law. I am not against the Old Testament. I actually find that there is a a place for that in our lives. However, that is not the agenda this morning to discuss that, um, but instead to discuss why Paul is actually writing this letter and to give us a better understanding of Paul's not actually attacking the law either. He's attacking false teachers. And so uh, this is actually the earliest letter we have from the Apostle Paul. It's the earliest we have. And the background to this book is Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey were going throughout the land, and they were going into cities such as Lystra, Derbe, Iconium, and Antioch of Pisidia. And they would enter these cities, and they would begin to share the gospel with non-believers, with Gentiles. These were non-Jewish people as we are here this morning. I don't know if anybody here is Jewish, but if you are not Jewish, you are a Gentile. So he's proclaiming the gospel to the Gentiles. He's proclaiming to pe- people like us. And as he is proclaiming this gospel, people are coming to the saving knowledge and grace of God in the salvation given through his son. And the churches were established. Elders were chosen. And once the churches were founded on this gospel, Paul and Barnabas said, all right, we're headed out. The church has been planted. You have elders. We've entrusted this to them. We've entrusted you to them, and we have faith that God will work through these men. And so they move on to the next city. We find out, though, however, that as soon as Paul and Barnabas leave, they are 
barely out of the town before a group of men come into the church and begin proclaiming a different gospel. They begin to come in and they say, Paul lied to you. Paul was not telling you the truth of the gospel. Paul gave you about 50% of the gospel, but he did not complete it. And so you don't have the gospel. You are not saved. You need what we have. And we're actually sent by the 12 apostles. Paul was not. Paul came on his own behalf. Paul's somewhat crazy, so don't listen to Paul. So when Paul and Barnabas get to their next city, they're sitting there, and somebody comes up and says, hey, when you left Galatia, some men came in, and they started explaining what was going on, and so Paul immediately sits down and begins to pin this letter, and he begins to pin it to the churches of Galatia, and if you read through the entire letter, you can sense his passion. You can sense the, the frustration slash deep love he has for these, these churches in Galatia. He's disappointed in what they're doing, but yet he's praying blessing upon them from God. And so what these Jewish men had come in and began to tell the Galatians was, yes, Jesus is part of the gospel. You do need to know who Jesus is and what Jesus did. But that's not enough. You also need to practice these certain Jewish traditions. If you are not practicing these traditions, then what Jesus did does not count for you. So they were promoting circumcision. They were promoting observance of certain days and months and seasons of the year based on what they had been taught through Jewish tradition. In essence, they were saying, you, you believers are not believers because you are not justified in Christ alone. You are justified in your works. And your works mean something because of what Christ did. But apart from your works, Christ means nothing. Their justification relied on their observance of the Jewish customs just as much as Christ's death on the cross was needed. In order to attack the gospel, however, they decided we need to first attack Paul. If you can attack the messenger, you can attack the message quite easier, much more easier than, than had you just come in and said, what he's preaching is wrong. Because the Galatians had a high view of Paul. They believed Paul was an apostle. They believed he was sent but these Jewish men began to attack who had actually sent Paul. And so we see Paul starting off his letter in these first nine verses by defending his apostleship and, the, and his message, which is the gospel. In fact, Paul spends about one-third of the entire letter on these two things. There's only six chapters, so in the first two chapters, he defends his apostleship. He gives his testimony. Uh, he gives post-conversion what's going on. He gives his authority. And then he defends the message before he actually gets into his the theology behind that message in chapters 3 and 4. It actually reads somewhat like a sermon. The first two chapters are his introduction. The second two are his theology. And the last two are his application. Okay, here's what this theology means. Here's how you apply it. And so if you read through the whole book, you kind of get a sense of a, of a pastoral heart behind Paul in this letter. But in the first nine verses, verses, we do get an amazing introduction into the entire letter. And so, if you would, look with me at chapter 1, and we'll read the first nine verses. It says, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. 
I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you before, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I'm saying again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Now this is a very strong introduction from Paul. And if you've read some of Paul's other letters, you might recognize a few differences as well as some similarities. After reading through these first nine verses, we can see Paul is actually claiming something, and this claim can be summed up in one statement. And that statement is, your understanding of God's grace is so vital that it could be the difference between life and death for you. Again, what he's saying can be summed up in this sentence. Your understanding of God's grace is so vital that it could be the difference between life and death for you. Now, many may have asked in the past, as well as asking now, why in the world should I care what Paul says or thinks? And I would say to you, that is a perfect question. This is actually one of the questions those who had come into the church were trying to get the Galatians to ask. They were getting the Galatians to ask, who is Paul? Why should I care what Paul says? And so, before we get too deep into the letter, we need to understand two things. And if you're taking notes this morning, these will be our two points. The first one is Paul's credentials. He is an apostle sent from God. His credentials. He is an apostle from God. And then also Paul's claim. Right understanding of God's grace is a matter of life and death. Again, right understanding of God's grace is a matter of life and death. If we look at these first two verses again, we can see that Paul is not speaking on his own behalf, nor is he speaking on behalf of any other man. He says, not from men nor through man. So in this statement, Paul is saying, there's not a group of men who have sent me. There's not a single man who has sent me. I didn't come on my own behalf because I'm a man, so I didn't just send myself. But no, he's saying, I am, a, I am an apostle. Those who were trying to discredit Paul were claiming that he was teaching some message that he had kind of concocted on his own, and he was doing so in order to please people. He wanted to gain followers. He wanted people to be a fan of Paul. And Paul actually attacks this later in chapter 1 because he says, if I was actually doing this, I'm doing a horrible job at it. Those coming into the church actually are con contradicting what I'm saying. They hate me. So if I'm, if I'm trying to please people, I'm not doing good at it. I'm failing in my mission. Obviously, that was paraphrased. Now, apostle means one who is sent. So if we know an apostle someone is sent, and we know that Paul is an apostle, logically our next question should be, well, who sent Paul then? On whose authority is Paul coming on? So take a look at verse 1 again. He says, An apostle, through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Now it needs to be noticed that Paul is explaining how essential Jesus is to the message he's fixing to proclaim because he, he connects him with God. He claims he is God. He's one with God. And so if you're missing that, then you miss the message as well. So those who are attacking Paul 
were ne weren't necessarily saying Jesus is wrong. They were just downplaying his role. And this is what Paul wants to attack. He's saying that, no, Jesus is essential. He is vital to the gospel message. And if you downplay that role, you downplay the gospel. You misunderstand the gospel. You don't have the gospel. You just have some words that tickle the ear. Now, it wouldn't be hard for someone to, to claim this in a letter. So how do we know Paul's telling the truth? I mean, it's not hard. We, we, we could claim it's not hard for Paul to sit down and say, hey, hey, God's the one sending me. Trust me. It's not hard. I could write a letter to the church saying, hey, God sent me. But we need to know that Paul's credentials aren't just from his own account. We have an account written in Acts that tells us about this conversion of Paul. If you would, turn with me to Acts 9. And we'll read Paul's conversion, used to be named Saul. And this will support, this will give proof to Paul's credentials, which he is claiming as an apostle sent from God. Now remember, if we, if we don't understand Paul's credentials, then it makes the message he's giving meaningless. We need to understand these credentials. So we're going to read 16 verses from 9, so I ask you to follow with me. But it, I think this is crucial to understand these 16 verses as part of his credentials. We'll be in chapter 9 of Acts. We'll start in verse 1. And, and what has happened right before this is a group of uh, Jewish people uh, had killed Stephen, who was a Christian martyr. He was proclaiming the gospel. They disagreed with it, like these men who had come to the churches of Galatia. And Paul says, you know what? Kill him. He won't stop preaching the gospel, so kill him. And then we find out that right after he kills Stephen, or he has Stephen killed, he begins to go throughout the cities, and he goes into every house, and he finds every Christian he can, and he either kills them or he throws them in prison. That was Paul's sole, that was Paul's sole mission going into these towns. And then he goes and he gets an order to be able to go to Damascus and do the same thing there. And so we pick up on his travel uh, to Damascus. And so in verse 1 of chapter 9, it reads, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he, be found, so if he found any among them belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what to do while you are there. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and he either, he either drank nor ate. Now there was, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen a vision. And in this vision, a man named Ananias comes to him and lays hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has the authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. 
But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. We see from this text that it is God who has called Paul, and it is on God's authority that Paul brings this message. Everything he is writing in the letter to the Galatians is not just because he feels like he needs to say it or wants to say it. It's because he is, he is speaking with the authority from God, and God has commanded him to go and spread this message. Now, we are in the same position that the Galatians were in. We read this letter from Paul, and we read Paul's letters, and we can with confidence know that we are not blindly trusting in Paul's opinion but we are hearing from God. This is the gospel according to God, not according to Paul. And this was what, the, what Paul was uh, uh, counteracting against those who had come into the church. They said, this is just Paul's gospel. We'll give you the real gospel. And Paul said, this isn't my gospel. This is God's gospel. This is the message from God. Heed this message. Paul says in his letter to the Thessalonians, he confirms the same thing when he says, And we also thank God consistently for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as, word, not as the word of man, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. So Paul again affirms, this is not just what I want to say. Who cares what I want to say? This is what God has told me to come tell you. And you've heeded it, and so you've heeded God's word. You've not heeded my word. You've heeded God's word. Now, we are not deifying Paul in any way. We have accounts to show that, acts, that Paul was not perfect. However, we do believe that Scripture is the very word of God. And in this, we believe that Paul has penned what God has asked him to say. Peter, the Apostle Peter, actually affirms this in his letters. In his letters, we find out that he's writing to multiple churches. And some of these churches are the churches in Galatia. And in chapter 3, verse 1 and 2 of his second letter, he says this. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up in you sincere mind by the way of reminder that you should remember the prediction of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. So what Peter is stating is that those who had come to your churches and planted these churches, these apostles that have come to you, they were speaking on behalf of God. And so if we know that he's writing to the churches of Galatia also, we know that he's saying the apostles that came to you, Galatia, were speaking God's word. They were speaking God's message. But who was the apostle to the Galatians? It was Paul. So we need to understand that Paul's writings are God's word and they are equivalent with the rest of Scripture. And we have no need to look anywhere else to hear from God. So many people today claim, I want to hear from God. God needs to show me a sign. God needs to speak to me. But they never pick up God's word. They never pick up the Bible. This is God's word. This is what God has given his apostles to give to us. So we need to remember that as we work through Paul's letters, Paul's not just expressing his opinions or thoughts, but yet he is expressing the word of God, what God has called for us to hear.
Take a look at verse 2 and 3, though. It says, And all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's not alone in what he is writing to these churches. He is a group of believers who are with him, and they support Paul's claim and his credentials. And they share the same concern he has about what's taking place in Galatia. They are concerned for these churches. And I would argue that this is a call for churches today. Are we as believers, you as a local congregation here at Park Hills, caring about churches who seem to be under attack from Satan? Are we wanting to extend correction and prayer to churches who are under attack of Satan? Or are we more inclined to sit back and watch a church implode because of poor doctrinal teaching and beliefs rather than to extend the hand of correction? You see, Paul is writing with a group of people who say to the Galatians, we see what's going on. You're headed down the wrong path. We're praying God's grace be upon you. We're praying blessings upon you. Turn from this false teaching and get right with God. Can we say that we do the same things when we hear about other believers who have turned from the truth of God's word and are walking down a path of false teaching? Or do we sit back because we don't want to step on toes? We don't want to make somebody feel uncomfortable. Now, there is a proper way to correct this false teaching. And Paul shows us that. And he does it so graciously. This is how Paul approaches the Galatians. He, does, he, he approaches the correction of their turning, and later in chapter 1 and 2, he shows other examples of how grace has been extended to him through his post-conversion. But we need to understand that grace is a major theme running throughout the entire letter to the Galatians. And this leads us to our second point this morning, Paul's claim. Right understanding of God's grace is a matter of life and death. Again in verse 3, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. To whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am so astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Paul offers a prayer for the churches like he does in many of his letters. But this one is a little different. After his prayer, he in summary states the gospel again. This connection helps us to see that the root of the gospel is God's grace. Paul further emphasizes this point when he claims that they have turned to a different gospel. Now remember, those who had come in weren't distorting, they were just distorting what Paul had come in and, and taught. They weren't getting rid of it completely. They weren't saying everything Paul said was wrong. They just said he got about the first half of it, now we, we need to finish out what he, had, he forgot to say. Essentially, they were taking the grace out of the gospel. They claimed that justification wasn't through Jesus alone. It required much more. 
And Paul says that you're falling for a lie. You're not even falling for another gospel because there's not another gospel. There's only one gospel. You're just falling for a lie. You're being deceived. You're turning to something else. You're entering into a spiritual situation no better than the one you came out of when we shared the gospel with you the first time. It is by God's grace that you were rescued. You need to remember this. And that's why he claims in verse 6 that because they are being conceived of a graceless gospel and are being to trust into something else, they are actually deserting him who called them. So we would expect him to say, you're turning from the grace of God. Why are you, desert, why are you deserting that? Why are you abandoning that grace? But he doesn't. He says, you've turned from that grace and so you've abandoned God. You're saying, God, I don't need you. And that's why, like all of us, they needed to be reminded that God's grace is the root of the gospel, and by rejecting that, they reject him. Part of the reason Paul offered the prayer in verse 3 was to remind them of the grace that they had received, but more importantly, to remind them of the grace that they needed. That's essentially why he breaks down the gospel after this prayer. But notice he doesn't ask for just generic grace. He doesn't say, I just pray grace on you. He says, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, subtly showing how essential Jesus is to this message. Because these men were claiming, this is the message from God, but it's not all about Jesus. And Paul's saying, no, this is the message from God. And it's all about Jesus. God's grace was made manifest through his son, Jesus. I mean, it says, Jesus gave himself for our sins. This is the problem we are all in today. Every one of us is a sinner, and that sin separates us from God. I love what the great theologian Martin Luther says about this phrase in his commentary on the letter to the Galatians. He says this, when we reflect that the one little word sin embraces the whole kingdom of Satan and that it includes everything that is horrible. We have reason to tremble, but we are careless. We make light of sin. We think that by some little work or merit we can dismiss sin. Folks, sin is more weighty than we care to think about, than we care to admit. We are enslaved to it. Yet we do convince ourselves, if I do this little good work, my sin will be negated. We don't take sin as heavy as it needs to be taken. We think we can counteract our evil nature by just doing some good things. When, when Scripture is clear, the Gospel is clear, it is only through God's grace alone through faith alone in Christ, that our sins can be dealt with and we can be made justified before a holy and righteous God. Those who came in after Paul and distorted this gospel were promoting that the Galatians could save themselves. They failed to realize that in trusting in yourself to save yourself, your works actually lead to death. And so we see that a wrong understanding of God's grace leads to death. 
I mean, look at what he says about the false teachers in verse 7 and 8. Not that there's another one, but there are some that trouble you and want to distort the gospel. Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. In essence, that phrase means, let him be damned to hell. And this sounds like Paul is just lashing out in frustration. Like, I'm sick and tired of these people coming in distorting this. Just let them go to hell. But what we need to understand is Paul's not doing that. Paul's saying is, he's telling these people, they have chosen to distort this gospel. They have chosen to reject the truth of God. And if you know this, Galatians, don't you dare sacrifice yourselves along with them. Don't listen to what they're saying and you go to hell as well. Because hell is where non-believers face the eternal wrath of God. And by turning to a graceless gospel, you are endangering yourself to go to this eternal wrath of God instead of trusting in Christ who took on that wrath for sin. So those teaching a distorted gospel are dead in their trespasses and are destined for an eternity in hell. Misunderstanding or even misrepresenting the doctrine of God's grace is an avenue to rejecting God. And we face this same problem today. There are many today, like those who followed after Paul, attempting to distort the gospel he preached. They claim that there are certain things you must do in order to be saved. There are certain things you must do in order to maintain that salvation. You have to walk an aisle. You have to say a certain prayer. You have to have an emotional experience. The more emotional you get in that experience, the more sure you can be of your salvation. So that person cried when they got saved, so they must be saved, more saved than this guy who just kind of was like, I'll do it. So they claim you have to have this emotional experience. There's some that claim you have to follow these certain rules in order to hold that, that salvation. Now, while I do agree there are things we must follow because God has commanded us to do them, I will also boldly say that those things do not maintain your salvation. They are the outflow of your salvation. A few weeks ago, my wife and I were having dinner with some friends, and uh, we were hanging around the, the, the living room, the what do you call it? The coffee table in the living room. And uh, one of the guys said, my friend sent me this clip of this sermon. And anytime that usually starts off the conversation, that's most of the time not good. So you, we were like, okay, well, what was it about? And he said, I can't even, I can't even describe to you what it was. You have to watch it. And so we, we pulled it up on the television, and we were all sitting there watching it. And this, this guy, he, I wouldn't even call it preaching. He was on a soapbox just talking. But he was, he was claiming, he, he held up his Bible, and he said, first he was claiming many things, but he said this, he said, this is the King James Bible. This is not a new King James, this is not ESV, this is not NASB, this is an NIV, this is a King James Bible. And I'm going to tell you out there right now, folks, if you are not reading a King James Bible, you are not saved. 
And I will admit, at first we did laugh because it was just so, really? This is, but then we got really sad. And, and not necessarily just like, oh, but we were, we were hurt by what was happening because as he said that, we heard many in the church just yell, amen, preach it, yes. And I'm, no, no, that's not true. And he began to list these other things. that If, if you're not doing this, then you're not saved. If you're not doing this, you're not saved. And they weren't even the good things that I would say, those are an outflowing of your salvation. They were just random things that he, he wanted to have happen. He was taking the grace of God out of the gospel. Paul later in his letter will tell the Galatians that if their works did help remove their sin, then Jesus' death on the cross was pointless. He didn't even need to come. But that's not the only misunderstanding and misrepresentation of God's grace that is evident in churches today. Many will claim that because it is all about God's grace and not about works when it comes to salvation, then it doesn't matter what you do post-conversion. You prayed your prayer and now live however you want to live. God's going to forgive whatever you do wrong in your life. Or they say, God's grace is so powerful and so magnificent, no one will go to hell. They don't even need to agree with God. They, they can say God doesn't exist. God's grace will overpower that sin one day and they will just go to heaven. These are false gospels. These are graceless gospels. They promote so much grace, but it's the wrong grace. It's a misunderstanding of grace. Paul even fights this claim in Romans 6. They ask, should we continue so that grace may abound? And Paul goes, no, don't. God's grace does not give you an excuse to live worldly. God's grace gives you the ability to fight sin and release us from its power, to free us from it, to recognize those things in your life that are sinful and help you battle those on a daily basis. God's grace shows that we can't do it on our own, but it also shows that he's the one that helps us through it. God's grace doesn't stop at our justification. It continues in our sanctification. Your works do not make you acceptable to God. God's accepting you by his grace should change your life. Your works do not force God to show you his grace. His grace gives your good works meaning. And that meaning is they bring him glory. That's why your good works don't save you. Because it's, because it's all about you at that point. Your good works glorify God. So when someone says, wow, that's really great of you, say, it's not me, it's God. God is the one working through me. God is the one making this happen. God has graciously told us how to live a life pleasing to him. Not to remain saved, but to live knowing that we only have life because of his grace. And the purpose of that life is to bring him glory. So you see, right understanding of God's grace leads to life. Life in Christ. Back in verse 4, it states that Jesus gave himself to deliver us from our sins. Your Bible may read, to rescue us from this present evil age. Sorry, to deliver us from this present evil age. Or it may say, rescue us from this present evil age. Like mentioned earlier, this sin is what constitutes this age and makes it evil. 
This world and time in which we live is marred by sin, and it is under Satan's rule. In 2 Corinthians, Paul explains that he and the other apostles and disciples went into Corinth and proclaimed the gospel, but yet there were some who failed to see the truth of it because Satan had blinded their eyes, had veiled their eyes to the gospel. Satan was the cause that they weren't able to see the gospel, the truth of it. And so in that, we see that God's grace is, the, is what removes that veil and what allows us to see the beauty and the power behind the gospel. But that doesn't negate the fact that this world is still full of sin, full of hopelessness, grief, pain, suffering, death. And because we are sinners, we are enslaved to all those things. That's why Paul in verse 4 states that Jesus gave his life to deliver us. It is expressing our need of help. He's saying you can't do it on your own. Tim Keller says it great. It does no use for me to see somebody drowning and throw them a manual on how to save themselves. It does no use. But they need me to throw the life preserver over. They need me to pull them back to the ship or to the land. And this is what God is doing. He's extending His hand of rescue to us. Our spiritual death transcends our physical death because when we die, if we are not justified before God, we spend eternity facing the wrath of God because of our sin. And we are in a state, we are in a need for a Savior. It is by the same grace that that Savior is revealed to us, and that Savior is Jesus Christ. Paul writes in Colossians 1, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption for the forgiveness of sins. We've been offered rescue. We've been offered life from this rule of sin and death through faith in Jesus by God's grace and a call to repentance. Understanding that by God's grace we can put our faith in Jesus, knowing He lived a perfect life, and died on the cross, buried and rose again for our transgressions, for our sin, we've been offered rescue. We've been made justified before God if we repent of our sins and put our faith in God, in Jesus. If you are here today and you've never heard the gospel, and you, or you, maybe you've heard something familiar but it was distorted, I would encourage you, I'd be more than happy to talk with you after the service. The deacons here would love to talk to you after the service. Any member here would love to talk to you after the service. Because this understanding of God's grace is vital. It means life or death for you. We must understand that salvation does not equal an easy, problem-free life, though. Because of Jesus' resurrection, which Paul is sure to affirm in verse 1, who he raised from the dead, Jesus now reigns as king, sitting on his throne at the right hand of God. And he awaits the day he will return and judge all the earth at the full consummation of his kingdom. And this is what we believe and know as the already but not yet. And I won't get into that. That's a whole other sermon in and of itself. And I'm already running over, but it's okay. We're almost done.
We have been given the ability through faith in Christ to fight our sin. To have hope that this age of sin will come to an end and that in Christ we have peace resting in that hope. We are not taken out of this world, but we are freed from the enslavement to sin that takes place in this world. And we hope and long for the day of Christ's return because we know that if we are in Christ, if we are saved, we will be found justified before God. Before God's grace, we are dead in our transgressions, but God extends that grace and he offers us life in Christ. Let me ask just a few things. When you think about the gospel, are you considering the, the weight of grace, of God's grace? Speaking with Samuel and being here for the time that I was, I know that you are constantly encouraged to be reminding yourself of the gospel, to be reminding yourself and each other of the gospel. But let me ask, do you remind yourself of the gospel only as some sort of ritual practice in order to have an answer when asked, what is the gospel? Or are you applying that gospel to your everyday life? Understanding that you have been extended the offer of salvation through grace alone and not by any merit of your own. Are you extending that grace in your relationship with others? Husbands, dads. I heard a quote the other day from uh, a pastor and he said, uh, it was, it was convicting to me, but he said, husbands slash fathers, uh, do, do you embrace the grace that is offered through the gospel, but neglect to show that same grace to your wife and children? And being married now almost a year and with a baby on the way, that hit me hard. And I think we all need to be challenged like that. Moms, wives, are you extending that grace to your husbands as well as your children? Those of you in here who might be a boss, who have co-workers, to your friends, family, brothers, sisters, are you extending the grace that was extended to you in the gospel? Do you understand the grace so when you present the gospel you are presenting God's grace? Or are you encouraging somebody to become some legalist? Or are you giving them license to do whatever they want? Look at verse 2 one last time. It says, To the churches of Galatia. Notice it did not read, To the elders of the churches of Galatia, to the deacons of the churches of Galatia, to the overseers of the churches of Galatia, to the men of the churches of Galatia. It is the congregation's responsibility to protect the gospel on which the church is founded. As the local congregation here, do you take that with enough seriousness? Are you on guard whenever you gather together? Not anxious, but are you on guard? When you meet for dinners, lunches, Sunday mornings, Sunday evenings, small groups, are you protecting the gospel on which this church is founded on? Or are we as Christians too comfortable assuming that no wrong doctrine could ever enter our church. The churches of Galatia were warned to be on guard, and so I ask us to heed that same warning this morning. For everyone here, do we realize that the understanding of God's grace 
could be the difference between life and death for us. And I'm not just talking about physical life and death. We all die because of sin. But there is something that takes place after death. Let us strive to understand the weight of the root of the gospel, which is God's grace. Let's pray. Father, we do praise you this morning as our protector, as our provider of salvation. We thank you this morning for the grace that you extend to us on a daily basis. We are reminded of how you are the source of our salvation. Salvation belongs to you alone. We thank you that you humble us when we begin to believe that it is based on us that we are provided our salvation. We thank you for the grace that you extend to us daily to help us fight sin and grow in godliness and grow in righteousness and the righteousness you've extended upon us through your spirit. But most importantly, we praise you and we thank you for the grace that was made manifest in your Son and how through his life, death, burial, and resurrection, you've extended grace to us, how you've rescued us from sin. And we do hope and we long for the day of Christ's return. I pray that your spirit would work in all the lives here this morning, God. Remind us of your grace. If we've never heard of your grace before, I pray that you would help us to understand it and heed the warning of a wrong understanding of that grace. It is in your Son's name that we are able to offer these prayers to you. Amen. I invite you to stand with us once more as we end our service. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above the heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy We do praise this morning that we have heard God's word so faithfully preached. Thank you, Brother Marshall, for reminding us that God's grace is something we should wake up with in our hearts and we should fall asleep with on our minds. It should be the center of our prayers as the cross offers us God's grace. Would you pray with me? Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. 
Amen. This has been a blessing to have you here this morning. Visitors, thank you. Guests, thank you for being here. We, we pray that you will be um, in God's blessing and in his mercy. And we thank you, Marshall and Alexandra, and we will be praying for a healthy baby um, and a growing family. Go with God this morning.